Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not already doing so, and do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome back onto the show, Larry Kramer, incoming president and vice chancellor of the London School of Economics. Now, Larry was on the show in 2020, and he was at the time president of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. He's just stepped down from that role. And so today we're going to do three things. We're going to look at some of those reflections on Larry's time at the Hewlett Foundation, some lessons in philanthropy and aspirations that Larry has for the London School of Economics going forward. And so without further ado, Larry, it's a pleasure to see you again and welcome back on to the Do One Better podcast today. Good to be here. It's good to be back. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's good to see you here in the UK. You, you're a previous guest of ours. You're a return guest. You've been with us in the show over three years ago when you were heading up the Hewlett Foundation. You've just stepped down from that, and you are about to take a post of president and vice chancellor of the London School of Economics uh, in a few days or in a few weeks. And you're in between that uh, those two posts. And what I'd love to do with you is perhaps delve a little bit into some reflections of your time at Hewlett, explore a little bit about your insights on philanthropy, of which you have a huge amount of experience, and then maybe looking forward uh, at some of those aspirations that you have for the London School of Economics, the LSE, which, by the way, is my old school. I have very fond memories of my time there, and I'm delighted you're going to be heading it up. Well, thank you. And those topics all sound great to me. Excellent. Excellent. Well, let's start then in that order. Tell us a little bit about your some of those key reflections of your time at Hewlett. How long were you there? What were some of the uh, some of the ups, some of the downs, some of the lessons? So I was at Hewlett for 11 and a half years. Um, uh, it was a great time in some ways to be in philanthropy because the field itself, I think, went through huge changes over that decade, driven by a whole lot of things, right? Changes in the economy, uh, the emergence of, you know, a new group of ultra-wealthy people coming into the field, giving in different ways, sometimes not really giving, sometimes giving in ways that were, you know, dramatically different, uh, sometimes, you know, doing more conventional kinds of philanthropy. So there was a, a lot of uh, ferment in the field. Same time, you know, I think uh, both the consulting part and the kind of media coverage part grew hugely. Uh, so that changed things. And of course, it's been a challenging decade for the globe. So there was more work and the work we were doing became harder in in, in many, many ways. So it was a really challenging period. I mean, for me, highlight the, you know, in truth, the best highlight um, was working with the people at Hewlett, um, both the board and the staff. It was really an extraordinary group um, that were, you know, so easy to work with. I mean, you know, there were challenges along the way. We had the COVID challenge that everybody had. Um, we had to react to all the changes that were happening in the world, especially the elections in 2016 and 2020 and all of that. But there was such goodwill on the part of the staff to try and work together to adapt and change in ways that were constructive and committed to the mission of the organization. So that, you know, in some ways, as I think back over the past decade, I have such uh, fondness uh, and really love for the people I got to work with. Um, you know, on the work side, I would say that was also true, although in a more mixed way with the people I got to work with outside of Hewlett. Mm. There was nobody I didn't like, um, but um, there were, you know, some 
one of the changes that I think took place over the decade was a huge uptick in collaboration among foundations. Um, I'd like to think that Hewlett was at the forefront of that. I mean, I came in very much with the sense that there was nothing we were working on that we could accomplish much alone. So if I didn't care about really making change and just wanted to be able to say, yeah, but our dollars did a positive thing, we could have worked by ourselves. But if I wanted to really see change happen, a big, big part of the job was finding partners to work with. And then there was the substance. You know, I came into Hewlett with the idea that most of the work that Hewlett did was great. They were problems I was really interested in being part of and working on, not being part of the problem, being part of the solution. Um, but that, you know, initially that almost everything we were doing depended in one form or another on moving public policy. And so we needed to focus on government itself, on U.S. democracy, which was, you know, I could you could see what was coming, I thought, um, you know, and and if the government was locked down by hyperpartisanship and gridlock, then we weren't going to accomplish what we needed to. So we had to focus on that problem as well. It was also an important problem. And then things grew from there, you know, it grew into the Economy and Society Initiative, it grew into the Racial Justice Initiative. All of these efforts were, you know, you know, fantastic. At the same time, I got to continue to participate in the Performing Arts Program, which was such a joy. You know, it's focused in the Bay Area, but such a joy a side of the world that I think gets too little attention from philanthropy these days. I got to work on education. I got to work on, you know, women's reproductive health and rights. I got to work on, and then, you know, most of all, in a way, at least in terms of the time demands, uh, climate. Hewlett was um, one of the two or three foundations that really created the field of climate philanthropy, and we remained at the center of it. And that was a major, major part of my work that was, you know, um, super interesting and in which, I think the, I'm gonna jump a little ahead here. I just wanna say this about climate. Um, there is a rhetoric that people have become so comfortable with about how we're losing. You know, we're losing on climate, the disasters. And, and it's, I think actually a, a, a false narrative in the following sense. Um, the dangers are huge, but when I started in 2012, the world was on track for, depending on who you asked, four to six degrees or six to eight degrees warming by end of century, which would be cataclysmic, you know, really culture ending. And, you know, 10 years later, we're on track for 2.8 to 3.2 with what's been done. Uh, 1.8 is really within sight with what's been pledged. Um, if you think about the fact that the entire global economy ran on fossil fuels in 2012, that is unbelievable progress, right? And yes, that last degree is gonna be a lot harder, um, but it's in sight. And so, you know, we're not, we're winning just slower than we need to. We need to speed it up. But, but you know, I, I feel it's been an incredible decade for people who care about bringing uh, global warming under, under control. Um, and so, and having, getting to be a part of that is something that you can mm -hmm. feel really good about. Well, that's great. I remember when, when you and I spoke a little bit over three years ago, climate was a big topic of conversation for us. Uh, we were also on the eve of uh, COVID-19. And at the time, I think you guys at Hewlett were the largest funder, pretty much, uh, of climate, uh, philanthropic funder. I think 25% of your budget was heading that way, if I remember. And then you said, but we may not stay the, the, the biggest. Could be that folks like Bezos and so forth, you know, come in. Yeah, um, and that was true. Uh, we were the largest through 2018. It's still 25% of our budget. We're still in the top 10, but there are a number of funders who are putting more dollars into the field. Yeah. 
And we do have the folks at uh, the Bezos Earth Fund uh, on this show as well. We also spoke a little bit about uh, adaptation versus mitigation, those conversations that seem to be happening in the field, transitioning do you divest or do you not divest? I think at the time you guys had $11 billion endowment. Not that easy to just divest. And I think even within Hewlett itself, there wasn't such a consensus internally on on various things, but but you had a view on it. Give us a little bit of a snapshot since the pandemic and uh, and how you see things progressing and whether it's still, you know, your views from back then are still your views now. Yeah, so... Um... Uh, so first, just in terms of overall progress, as I say, I think, you know, Hewlett, along with many of the biggest funders, have shifted our strategies. The strategies up until about 2020 um, were focused on, we say, raising ambition, getting governments and private industry to commit to doing more for climate, raising their ambition. Um, we've now shifted from raising ambition to implementation with the idea that actually the ambition is there, right? What people have pledged to do or are trying to do is, in, is a lot and we need to help make that happen. So let's focus on implementing what's been what's been you know put on the table. There's still more that needs to be done. There's still more ambition needed, but our best route to raising ambition is successful implementation of what people have committed to do so far. So that's, I think, where the field as a whole is. And as I say, I think that's an incredibly positive development. I mean, the IRA is an amazing piece of legislation, but we need to realize it so on. Um, so that that's with respect to, you know, with respect to the adaptation versus mitigation debate, I have, you know, views that I think are considered idiosyncratic. Um, they have evolved only in the following sense. I actually think the debate itself is a misnomer. That is to say, adaptation is fundamentally less a climate problem than it is a kind of disadvantaged communities problem. So if you think about disadvantaged communities, and I know the term isn't you know, much love now, but I don't know any other good term to capture. If you think about there are there are multiple problems within those communities from both the vestiges of historical racism, ongoing, you know, racism, um, economic disadvantage, lack of resources, and so on. And those problems manifest themselves. There's inadequate education, there's inadequate access to broadband, there's inadequate access to capital, and so on. And the adaptation is part of those. So if you care about disadvantaged communities, which problems do you want to work on? And nobody works on all of them. Um, we have chosen a number of them. We work on education. You know, we work on um, uh, access to capital through our economy and society. Um, the effects of climate change on those communities is not one of the problems we work on. Climate is the effort to stave off much bigger consequences that both those and other communities will suffer. So I think when you frame it that way, you know, um, if you're arguing that you should be doing adaptation, what you're really arguing is that's the problem within a disadvantaged community that you should focus on rather than or if, if somebody's doing none at all. You know, but it's an argument for what are the problems in existing communities that we think we should work on now. And I just don't want to put it up against climate mitigation, which is really a different thing altogether. Um, that said, because of the way the debate has been framed, you need to work on adaptation to a certain extent because we need to build political support. And you have whole communities that if they don't see some of this in their own lives now, for understandable reasons, find it hard to get behind an effort to like solve a problem of the future. So we do need to focus on adaptation to do mitigation, but but it's through that lens as opposed to it's mitigation or adaptation. Those are two climate problems and which one do you care about more? Um, 
you know, with respect to the whole investment divestment issue, I mean, here's the interesting thing. Um, you know, it's complicated because it really turns on endowments and all endowments are different and large endowments are different than small endowments and so on. And, and what divestment actually means differs. So what I discovered as the debate went on was in the way people were actually talking about Hewlett had already divested, which is to say we had early on, before it was even a big issue, we had in our separately managed accounts sold off all our fossil fuel assets. We didn't have any, but that's a small part of our endowment as it is for most large endowments, like 2%. Um, we had in our separately, in our partnerships, our private investments, um, which have focused strategies. We had agreed that we would no longer invest in oil and gas extraction and that we would, the ones that we had, we would just let go. And we did that. Um, and what, what that left was commingled funds where I couldn't see the case for divesting without, you know, the costs were so much larger than the benefits even to climate. And of course, turns out that when people say we've divested, they don't mean that either. Nobody has divested from that with a large endowment. Some of the smaller endowments where they can actually do it within change managers, which is what you have to do without much consequence for their returns have done it. But a large endowment, whether it's a university or a foundation, there's there's really no room to do it. There are not funds that can take resources at the scale we need to invest that are without fossil fuels and so on. So you manage those over time as we do to try and reduce it. But you can't just say, you know, we're done with that. We're not going to invest in anything that it's just not actually a, a realistic option for for any large, large endowment. So with that understanding, you know, I, I think I felt comfortable with where Hewlett was because it's essentially where everybody else is, just because I had talked about it earlier to me, divestment meant you would have none anywhere in your endowment, and I couldn't see the case for um, for doing it in the portion that is commingled, particularly public equities. Um, so, so that's so my views on that haven't really changed. I think the field uh, has changed some. Still, the case, as you pointed out three years ago, that the subject matter is much more complex than you would uh, uh, than we, than you would think by reading the headlines. Yes. I mean, it is. You need to understand how endowments work first, which very, very few people do. It's also the case, by the way, with you know universities. People think of the endowment as some pot of funds that the university can spend however it wants, and it isn't. It's like usually 90, 95% restricted. Um, so it lets you do what you're doing, but it doesn't let you do new things and so on. So there's very little understanding, I think, in the world. And the media coverage, unfortunately, uh, never makes the effort to explain to people um, how an how a managed endowment works, um, and and then you fall into these simplistic debates. Yeah. In terms of folks actually learning about things and how things actually work, I think you you mentioned something along the lines of you know there's a lot of great philanthropists out there, but there's actually a lot of philanthropists out there with big checkbooks that don't want to learn. They just think they have the answers already from the outset, and then in actual fact, you have a lot of bad philanthropy as well. What's your take on 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 the state of affairs on, on philanthropy? It's a broad question, but give us no, your no, no. I think that's I I think I think that's true. I think what's happening though, I where I would qualify what I said earlier. I think people are learning. They're not necessarily learning the way I wish they would learn, in the sense that they're not coming to people like me and asking, you know. And I I think I was earlier a little resentful about that. <laughs> um, but 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 as you watch, they are learning and changing. 
And so I, I may have talked about this the first time. I mean, Bill and Flora Hewlett started doing philanthropy in the 1940s. And by the time they professionalized and created their foundation in 66 or professionalizing it in 77, they were experienced philanthropists. They'd made their mistakes. They'd learned what worked and what didn't in their view. They had found the areas that they cared about. They'd learned, you know, why it was important to do general support, why it was important to make long-term partnerships, why it was important to trust the grantees to use the funds that you gave, all of that. And so it was built into our foundation. A lot of the new philanthropists are where Bill and Flora were in the early 1940s. And the only difference being that they made their money so fast, you know, uh, unlike, unlike the Hewlett's. They, they didn't have massive wealth at the time they started. Um, that people pay a lot of attention to what they're doing as they are making their mistakes and learning. And um, the attention sometimes slows the learning process down because often it's like this sort of glorification of what they're doing, even though it's very problematic that slows down their sense that they're actually not doing this well. But I do think as I look at the sector as a whole, um, that is changing. People are sort of um, realizing, you know, that maybe this doesn't work so well, maybe I should try that. They're listening to each other. Um, you know, there, there's a lot more collaboration, including with the high net worth individuals, which was very difficult at first and, and all of that. So I'm actually more hopeful, I think, than I was that the field will get there. Um, but it does require a kind of open mind. Um, and, but at, like anything, right. So, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, indeed. There's a lot of, uh, cross-pollination of ideas, peer-to-peer -peer engagement, folks learning, uh, a lot of literature coming to the fore as well, uh, which is all great. You mentioned, you know, you're more confident that the field will get there. So it's still an ongoing, uh, it's a work in progress. It always will be. And I, I should say on the flip side, some of the new funders, they are trying things that work, you know, and so we're learning from them as well. Um, so it's, it is definitely, you know, it's like, there's a lot more experimentation, much of which doesn't work. No surprise. I mean, it's, it would be surprising if a hundred years of philanthropists had just dug themselves in a hole doing something badly, right? You know, there's a lot of wisdom in John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie and, you know, uh, George McButton. They, they were smart people and they, you know, so there was a lot there, but there's always new things to learn. So so there's a mix that way. Some of the new stuff, as I say, I think we can and have learned from. I think one other aspect that I would highlight for better and worse is there is increased scrutiny um, because there's a whole new kind of field of journals and journalism um, some of it traditional, some of it, you know, focused uh, nonprofit organizations um, that um, is sometimes helpful. But, you know, one of the things I worry about is almost all of the people who are doing that writing have never actually worked at foundations or funders. Occasionally they have, but most of them have not. And so the criticisms often, you know, ring hollow or are way wide of the mark. Um, because they don't actually understand how foundations work. I think it would be really useful and important for the people at a lot of these journals to find some way to spend more time uh, inside a funder uh, so that they could actually have a better understanding of what the constraints are, what the opportunities are, how it actually works, how it looks from that perspective. Um, and, and that would also help with the new funders because they may be paying attention to some of that stuff, even though, you know, if you're sitting where I am, it's like, it's not that they're wrong. It's that they don't understand enough, you know, like, yes, that's a problem. No, that's not a plausible solution, right? Or no, that's not actually the problem. This is the problem. Those kinds of things are sometimes hard to communicate. Yeah, I love that. 
Well, that could very well be a program for a foundation, you know, getting the journalists out there to shadow this chief exec or the strategy officer. We started that, you know, right before COVID. We had a plan in place to, to invite people to come spend three months. Just come here. You can, you don't, you just go to whatever meetings you want and so on. Uh, and we started it and then COVID knocked it off and then we just hadn't gotten back to it. But you have to be brave. I don't know. I mean, I used to be a chief exec of a foundation myself. Um, I don't know how many foundation folks would be keen on having a journalist just shadow them to every meeting, show up as you want to what you want, Brent. <laughs> I don't know. I guess, you know, I didn't think of it as requiring courage. Um, I, I guess there's a certain degree of confidence in, you know, not that we're not subject to criticism, but if not our quality or the, you know, of at least our good faith. In which case, if we were doing something wrong, I was perfectly willing to listen and learn from it, as I was even from people who'd never been in foundations. I just found that often the criticisms didn't land because there was so much they didn't understand. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, in terms of those, um, the progress in the field of philanthropy, any particular aha moments that stick in your mind that you think, wow, that was that was pretty cool. I, I I learned something here from that philanthropist or that collective of philanthropists. Something that I wasn't uh, familiar with before, but I, I'm 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 happy that I was exposed to it, and I'm going to embrace it. Well, most of those moments were about substance rather than how to do philanthropy. Okay, and I had a lot of those moments, conversations with somebody where you'd come away thinking, oh, you know, that is a problem. I either didn't understand or I didn't even understand that it was a problem. Um, the, uh, the whole economy and society initiative grew out of a set of conversations like that with people that were not planned. Um, I was just in conversations and they would take a turn and then you'd go back and you'd go, oh my God, I hadn't really understood that. Um, so there were lots and lots of those moments. They changed our democracy. They just They were all over the place. Um, there was a lot of learning around racial justice stuff. Um, we had started work on, you know, what people now call DEI, the term wasn't even there yet. When I got there in 2013, I got there in late 2012. In 2013, we started that work. But, you know, in the wake of uh, George Floyd's and Brianna Taylor's, the wake of those killings, and then everything that followed from that, I think I learned a lot. We did as an organization. Right. Um, we're continuing to learn there, right? Because that's a kind of pendulum. Um, and uh, and you have to be adapting to what's going on. So so there was certainly a huge, and that was both how to do philanthropy and substance. Um, and then, you know, I think most of the other aha moments were things we did that worked badly. So it wasn't so much that, you know, like we did the collaboration around Facebook research. We put it together too quickly and didn't think hard enough about what was needed to make a collaboration like that work, particularly when it included a private company. Uh, that had, you know, very strong interests and incentives uh, and so on. And so I learned a lot from that and, you know, other examples of things that it's like, oh, that wasn't the right way to do it. You do learn a lot from the failures. That's, uh, that's yeah. Well, things. you know, I never talked in terms, I never talked in terms of success or failure. I actually tried to get people not to use that language. It's all about learning. So. Excellent. Excellent. A term that existed before we spoke, but really didn't come to prominence until possibly afterwards, trust-based philanthropy. Uh, is, the, is, is it very much something that everybody everybody's talking about it, but is everybody genuinely embracing it? And is the pendulum possibly going to move back? You know, the term itself has no meaning, unfortunately, or it has too many meanings. So for some people, what it means is 
you know, giving gen long-term general operating support, in which case, you know, Hewlett has been doing that since the very beginning. Uh, about 70% of our funds go that way. The other 30% are because you can't do it at the beginning. You actually have to learn whether it is a partner who you can and should trust because you're aligned and all that. Um, at, in the immediate wake of COVID, a lot of funders did that. And then the question was whether it would stick, and I don't know what the answer to that is. So that's one version of trust-based philanthropy, in which case it doesn't mean anything. It's just another word for something that people have been saying for decades and not doing, which is we should be giving long-term general operating support. Um, taken to an extreme at the other end, you know, sometimes it means funders, um, you know nothing. Uh, you have no business telling anybody anything. Give them the money and just shut up and get out of the way. Um, I think that's a really bad idea. Um, and it's bad for the grantees. It's even worse. It's bad for the grantees as well as the funders. Um, and and that's so first, you still have to decide who you're going to give the money to. It's not like you can escape that. I had a conversation with somebody who said to me, you have no right to that money, to which I responded, you're right. I don't have any rights to this money, but neither do you. Like nobody has a right to it. And for better or worse, I'm stuck in the position of having to decide who among the infinite or you know countless number of people that we could give the money to should get it because it's not endless. So I have to figure that out. Um, so that's one. I have to figure out who should get the resources. As I say, in terms of their doing their work, they know better than me. Of course they do. I shouldn't be telling them how to do their work. That's the general operating support idea. Here's the money. You figure out how to spend it to achieve the goal that we have agreed on. That's a three. Then we have to make sure, though, that we're aligned. So what? Are, what how should we think about success for this grant? And, you know, we adopted a practice of saying, grantee, you tell us. And if it works for us, we're good. And if it doesn't, let's have a conversation until we find something that works for both of us. Tracking at the strategy level is just a different question. That's what we, the foundation, have to care about. The sum of all the grants we make are supposed to add up to something. And that's for us independent of, but in terms of what should be success for your grant, you tell us how to measure it. Um, so that's a kind of third thing. Um, but the most important one is just as you know better than me, you grantee, know better than me how to do your work. I have a perspective that you don't because I'm working across the field. I'm working with dozens and dozens of grantees in your field in ways that you never have time to do. And so that's the partnership. And so I, I need to both help and, and inform and sometimes make sure that you do things that will align well with to make the field as a whole progress. So, you know, it's and so it wouldn't be, it's not, I don't think it's smart philanthropy to just give people a bunch of money and, and say, we're done, don't bother us, right? Because actually, you do need my help to maximize your ability to do the thing that you do better than I can do. Um, and so that's often lost in the debate. As, as many things, right? Very complex topic, and you just highlighted so many different dynamics that you don't normally hear by just saying, are you in favor of trust-based philanthropy, aren't right. you? which is why I don't like the term, you know, and it usually masks, and you're not even sure what, because as I say, people use it differently. Well, the term of impact investing as well. I mean, what it actually means. You can, yeah, that's another one. You know, it is true. That'll it's be for true. episode uh, part three uh, when you're back. So we've done a bit of reflections on the world of Hewlett and, uh, and some of the insights and lessons uh, in philanthropy. And now here, let's look forward a little bit. So you're about to come in and become the next president and vice chancellor of the London School of Economics, uh, a, a place I hold in high esteem, a place also very much uh, having to do with philanthropy, with learning, with driving fields forward. 
Um, what's your, um, how are you feeling about it? What sort of aspirations do you have going forward? So, you know, what was, so why move, right? I mean, I had been at Hewlett, it was going on 12 years. I don't think it's good for an organization to have an executive without change for more than 15 or so. So I was starting to think, what would I want to do next anyway, uh, when the LSE opportunity came up? Um, and of course, my career before Hewlett had been in universities, and I, I love that. I mean, I think they're unbelievable institutions. Um, and, and just to and just to interject there, you you were the dean of Stanford Law, which I think I told you last time I thought was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a cool job. This was, you know, another order of magnitude when when they, you know, called to see if I might be interested. I mean, LSE is itself and there's it's a completely unique university in the world. Um, it is by an it, to say it's the most global or international university sort of suggests that there's a kind of continuum. And the truth is LSE isn't on the continuum with everybody else. It is an actual global institution uh, in terms of faculty makeup, in terms of student makeup, in terms of the nature of the education and so on, in a way that no other university is, um, with an incredibly interesting background in history. Um, so all of that sort of, you'd have to sit up and say, wow, that's, that's itself kind of interesting. But for me, what really did it and what I'm hoping happens at the university is if you think about the major problems the world needs to address, and they were the problems that I was focused on at Hewlett as well, all of them, the problems are fundamentally problems of social science and the solutions need to come from the social sciences, not exclusively or entirely, but centrally and critically. Right? How do we make democratic government work in the 21st century when so many forces have made it difficult to maintain a sense of political community across difference? How do we think about redefining the relationship of markets and government to society when markets have changed so much that all the old thinking is not only not working, but effectively counterproductive? How do we do those first two things within the ecological limitations that we have now confronted we must address, not just climate, but also biodiversity, fresh water, and so on. Um, in solving those three problems, how do we address the social inequalities which have persisted from the beginning of time, but that have gotten worse and that the people who are excluded are no longer willing to tolerate? And lastly, how do we utilize to best effect and avoid the disadvantages of all these fantastic new technologies. Every single one of those problems is what this university, which is a social sciences university, is focused on. And so here you have this global institution, uh, truly, uh, working on the globe's most important problems. And it's like, okay, let's figure out how we can maximize our impact in the world to help solve these problems. So that, what an incredible challenge, right? It's got an amazing faculty. It has amazing, you know, uh, uh, capacity to attract some of the best students. It's in London, which is, you know, the global center of, you know, I think London has superseded New York at this point as, you know, the world's most important city. Um, it's a center for banking. It's a center for, you know, trade. Um, Brexit didn't help, but it hasn't actually hurt London, uh, it seems. Um, and so, you know, so everything is is set up for this to be at the, at this moment in time. So, so that's where the aspirations are. And the challenge for me is, you know, leadership in a university is different than leadership in a foundation, right? Leadership in a university is completely leading from behind. It's figuring out what your faculty wants to do, counting on the fact that you have, you know, great faculty, which we do, and then helping them 
do what it is that, that they determine needs to be done and maximizing its impact. So, you know, that's, that is itself an incredibly interesting challenge. It lines up well with prior experience I've had in other universities and at Hewlett. It's really the way I approached my job at Hewlett. But, but whenever I needed to step out of it, I could do so. And you can't do that as a, as a university president. A bit of a loaded question, but with the sense of urgency and all of the things going on around us that we've just been talking about, um, there, there is this sort of feel sometimes, you know, things in the academic world can move at a glacial pace. Um, is, is that true? Do you think, could things move quicker? I, I don't, I think it's one of those things people say without it. It's actually never been true. I mean, it depends on what the thing is, you know, no more. So just like businesses don't always move fast, you know, everything, all these people, they're just so used to saying it. And then you can point to a couple of instances where it's true. So in my experience, you know, universities, like every other institution, or faculty within universities can move incredibly quickly. You know, I mean, uh, research, the, the benefits, it happens fast, happens slow, it depends. Um, so, but it's certainly not a kind of built-in feature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in terms of driving forward the change that uh, that we're talking about here, these aspirations, all the, all the pressing issues that we have on the on the planet, and LSE being in that enviable position to to be able to affect change, is it through the status quo? You know, coming up with the PhDs, doing the research, uh, doing some of the think tanks type of stuff. Is there anything else in particular you think one could grab onto to turbocharge things? Well, what I think is the what you're thinking of is the traditional stuff is the foundation, right? You're educating people, your faculty are doing their research. So the, the question is, what are the devices for bringing the separate pieces together so that they have potential for maximum impact and getting them out there in the world where they need to be gotten so that they can have, and for that, there's, you know, the, the universities like every other institution have been innovating for quite some time. Um, you know, the growth in academic institutes and academic centers and the way they actually operate today is quite different and it can be and often has been designed to do exactly that. Um, the collaborations between universities and governments and businesses are much richer and more common uh, than they have been in the past. So it's not that we, we it's not that we need to invent something new, uh, but we do need to make really, really effective use um, which isn't and hasn't always been done um, of the devices that we have. And and we have to do it in ways where we don't erode the foundation. Excellent. I love it. So before you run off, I'm going to ask you for a key takeaway. What's that one thing that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? So here, here's the one thing that I've sort of tried to live by. It's It's a sort of don't assume the truth of conventional wisdoms. Um, don't assume they're wrong, but don't assume they're right. And be willing to actually ask whether that assumption is right or not. And if not, take in something new and move forward. And I think if I think about what we did at Hewlett, where philanthropy has gone and is going, our, the conversation we just had about universities and the role that they can have in all three of them, I think people limit what can be done by taking for granted things that don't necessarily need to be taken for granted. So it's not something I said specifically, but I think it underlies, I'd like to think it underlies all of the places in which I've worked and, and will bring, I hope, to 
to LSE. So it's not to tell people to work differently. It's to tell them to understand what they're doing differently and then be open then to some different ways in which we can enhance and improve. I love it. And intentionally or otherwise, that actually is the motto of the LSE, understanding or knowing the causes of things. Yes, it is. So that's wonderful. Larry, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure seeing you again. Thanks for making the time and the best of luck in your role as president and vice chancellor of the London School of Economics. Well, thanks and thanks for asking me and uh, we'll be talking again. Absolutely. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Larry Kramer, incoming president and vice chancellor of the London School of Economics and former head of the Hewlett Foundation. For information about this conversation and more than 200 interviews and case studies with remarkable thought leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at lidji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not already doing so, and I'll catch you this coming Monday.